Thank you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. again good morning everyone and I just want to welcome everyone those who have joined us on live stream and as you know we are starting a new series this morning I like to call it tour de Colossians it's going to be a five-month tour and I will be the main tour guide there are many treasures we would see as we journey together we will not be stopping at every nook and corner to enjoy the scenery But I know where the treasures are, and I will show you the places of great interest and importance. So all I'm asking you is just pack your bags, get on the bus, and follow along. I want you to use your theological cameras to take pictures or snapshots as we journey together for your own albums. Keep your own journals so that you can create a theological collage at the end of this journey. You can always look back and reflect on what you have learned and show it to others, even teach to your children and others in the family and friends. My goal as the pastor or the teacher over the next five months is to give you the panoramic view of this episode so that you could capture the portraits for your own spiritual growth. So I'm going to ask everyone, so fasten your seatbelts and simply come along with me. Pay close attention as we dive deep into the text. And I want you to ask the Holy Spirit, your counselor, your companion, and your teacher to reveal things that aren't clear to you. Now with that being said today, being the first day of our tour, all I'm going to do today is just to whet your appetite. I'll show you a glimpse of what this book is all about, beginning with a bird's eye view. Now, church, as you open to study any book in the Bible, the first thing you should know is the genre of the book. A genre is the category of literature. In the New Testament, there are 27 books, you know that, and they are of different genres. Now, genre will determine how you read and process the literature. For example, we have the ancient biography, we have history, we have letters, and we have apocalyptic. The ancient biography are the Gospels, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The history is the book of Acts. The letters are the Pauline letters and the general letters or epistles that we have in the New Testament, and apocalyptic is the book of Revelation. Now, this book of Colossians that we are going to look at today is one of Pauline epistles. Now, epistles are one genre of scripture that are best read in long form. Now, when you're reading an epistle, you must ignore the chapters and the verses because these were added to the biblical text later on in the 16th and 13th centuries. So, reading an epistle straight through is an entirely different experience from reading a few verses at a time. 
I want you to think about it this way. Let's say you receive a multi-page letter from a loved ones. You certainly are going to sit down and read it through. You wouldn't read one paragraph at a time and come back to this letter again. So if the person asks you, now, did you receive my letter? And you're not going to say, yes, I am savoring it by reading sentence by sentence. You would never do that. Now, we read letters in one go, in one setting, don't we? So unlike the Gospels and the Acts, the Pauline epistles hardly contain narrative, historical records. I'm not saying they aren't there, but that's not the main focus. These are primarily correspondence. So Paul sends a greetings, he sends instructions, he deals with some issues that he has noticed, and he gives an encouragement, and you find some background information. So as you dive in, you are going to see an amazing theological truth in the book of Colossians, like in any other books. And also you're going to have some powerful lessons that flow out of the gospel story of Jesus. Now because of this, the Pauline epistles contain the majority of Christians' theology. This is where the story of Jesus described in the gospels is explained in greater detail. So as we carefully study these epistles, we also learn how Christians should live in response to Christ's life, death, and resurrection. So as we go on this five-month tour, church, this is what I want to give to you. We'll certainly be able to appreciate Colossians as inspired scripture, because this is the foundational for our understanding of God, ourselves, and the world, and God's savings work. We'll also gain a thorough knowledge of Colossians. We will attempt to hear Colossians as it's originally heard by the original readers, as intended by its author. We'll responsibly apply its message in our own setting. And of course, we will get to know God better, to listen to Him and to respond to Him. So with that introduction... I'm going to ask all of you to open your Bibles to the book of Colossians. We're going to look at just the two verses, verse number one and two. So let me commit this time to the Lord in prayer before we dive in. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that you have given to us to be able to get into your books. We thank you for the provision of your word, that we have access to it, we have the freedom to read it, we have the Spirit of the Lord who would teach us. So we pray as we launch this new study that you would give us the alertness and the keenness that we need so that we can focus on the Word. We pray that the Spirit of the Lord will minister to us very personally, reveal to us things that we do not know, and help us to respond to the Word as the Word do its work in our lives. Pray that your will will take pass in our lives, O God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. So let's look at the first two verses. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, 
grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now church, as you read these two verses, what do you take from these verses? Let's keep it simple. We know from, this, from these two verses that Paul is writing this letter. We know that he identifies himself as the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also know that his role is as per the will of God. We know that there is Timothy, whom he calls his brother, being part of this. And we also know that Paul is writing to a church in a place called Colossae. And the recipients of this letter, he identifies them, as you read this, as saints and faithful brethren. And also we see that at the end he is extending blessings. He is saying grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I know that we can spend hours and hours on these two verses, even going into every word. For example, who is an apostle? What do you mean by the will of God? What do you mean saints? What do you mean brethren, faithful brethren in Christ? What do you mean by the grace? What do you mean by peace? These are separate studies we can do in our Bible studies. But today I want to look at it from a big picture point of view. So let us break it down first about the author. Now it's very obvious this Paul is the author and he mentions that three times in this epistle. We see that in this first verse and we also see in the latter part of verse 23 and I'm going to, it appears on the screen as you look at it. He talks about the gospel and he says, which was preached to, preached to every creature under heaven of which I, in the first person he says, Paul became a minister. And as he sums up this letter in chapter 4 verse 18, and he says this, this is, the, this is how he closes this letter. Again he identifies himself here, look at this. This salutation by my own hand Paul. Again, he's reiterating, it's I am writing this letter to you. And he says, remember my chains. What is he saying there? He's telling them that he is in chains. He is in prison. And then he says, grace be with you. Amen. So this letter is the seventh letter Paul placed in the middle of his 14 epistles to churches and church leaders. So firstly, what we've done so far is we looked at the author. It's Paul. Secondly, we are going to look at the city. If you look at this map, Colossae was located in Asia Minor, which would be in modern-day Turkey. Now, Colossae was a small town about 100 miles east of Ephesus. I know we have done a full series on the book of Ephesians. We went through a systematic study. And it's going to help you as we go through this. Now also we notice that, that uh, it's a, the Colossae is about 10 miles from Laodicea. I'm sure the name rings a bell for you, those of you who have gone through the book of Revelation. And it's 13 miles from Hierapolis. So these three cities are called the triad of cities in, in the Lycos Valley. Colossae had once been a fairly important town roughly around 450 B.C. before Christ. But during the time of Romans, the trade route had shifted to go through Laodicea. 
So what happened at the time of Paul, the Colossus' importance had diminished. It's a very small town. Even though it's notably small, it was still a cosmopolitan city where different cultural and religious elements that were mingled together in the city of Colossae. Church, know this. God's concern for his own is never based on human distinctions. Let me repeat that. It's something for us to take. God's concern for his own is never based on human distinctions like the size. Now, the Colossian church, though it's small and insignificant, it was still close to the heart of God. He obviously thought it important enough to lay that burden on the heart of Paul to act on this, to write this epistle. This letter to this insignificant small town, it became the most important letter. Why? Because it teaches us regarding the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So there is a lesson for us to learn. The lesson is this church, nothing is insignificant to the Lord. No one is insignificant for the Lord. Now you may feel you may be nobody in the family. You may be nobody in the community, nobody in the workplaces, nobody in, even in the world, nobody notice me. But I want you to know that you are significant in the eyes of the Lord. Not every Tom, Dick, and Harry. When your faith in the Lord is authentic, when your love for the Lord is genuine, when your heart is tuned with Him, when you seek Him with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength, here is the promise to the believers. Look at this. It's 2 Chronicles 16, 9. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. Church, if this does not boost you up, I don't know what will. What we are seeing here is if you are a committed believer, the eyes of the Lord is upon you. He wants to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. That's what you are seeing here. So I want you, those who are seated in your homes and even those who are seated here, I want to turn to the next person and say, I am significant to my God. His eyes are on me. That's the first lesson that we learn because Colossae, the saints in Colossae were significant for the Lord. So that's the lesson that we are learning here. The first lesson is every believer is significant to God. So, okay, we looked at the author, we looked at the city. Now we are going to look at the church. Now, about the church, you will be surprised to know that Paul never visited Colossae personally. Most of the churches Paul has established, we would know that Paul has visited and he was partly responsible to establish the church. But here, Paul had not visited this. Look at Colossians 2.1. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea and 
for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. This church had, there had been planted by Epaphras. He was a native, and you're going to study all this as we go through this book, who was probably converted and discipled during Paul's extended stay in Ephesus. In the book of Acts chapter 19, we see that. Epaphras also probably planted churches in Laodicea and Hierapolis. In Colossians 4.13, it talks about that. The church in Colossae met in the home of, you know whom? Philemon. I know you all know who Philemon is. Whose runaway slave Onesimus, he met Paul and Christ during Paul's Roman imprisonment. So, so far we had seen the author, we had seen the city, we had seen the church. Now let us examine the letter itself. So you ask the question, now why would Paul write to this relatively insignificant church? You know, as I was reading this, as I was preparing this message, I tried my best to dig into the archives to see the population of Colossae. And only in one place I noticed that was about 25,000 people. Now, I don't know how far that's true, but I was reminded of my little town I come from in Dundas. 25,000, 30,000 people the most. The eyes of the Lord is upon the saints. They're not living in a big urban city. It's not a mega church that we belong to. But the eyes of the Lord are there. But God caused Paul to write something to this relatively insignificant church. Why did he write this letter? Because, church, as you go through this, we are going to see that this small town church had big-time doctrinal threats. There's a huge problem. There's a threat in the church community about the basic doctrines. So this prompted Paul to write this wonderful epistle, this little letter with only four chapters. It sets forth the supremacy and all sufficiency of Christ more forcefully than any of his letters. The time is about A.D. 60 to 63. Apostle Paul is in prison in Rome. I'm just trying to show you a picture so you understand the, the geographical layout of these cities. So Paul is in, in prison in Rome, and it is from here he wrote the prison epistles, which are the Ephesians, the Philippians, the Colossians, and the Philemon. There's a serious heresy that had risen in Colossae, and Epaphras, who was apparently the founder of this church, was so concerned, naturally, if I see a heresy rising up within SAF, I would be more burdened and concerned about it. He was so concerned, he made a 1,000 miles journey from Colossae to Rome to visit Paul in prison. Makes sense, isn't it? He's going to this spiritual father. What should I do now? I spot some issues in the church. There are things that are happening that may, about to happen that are not very pleasing to the Lord. They are in conflict with the scriptures that we know. 
So he went to Rome and found Paul, who was under house arrest in his own quarters. Acts chapter 28 talks about that. So who is this Epaphras? And we are going to study this later. He was one of their church members. He was a faithful gospel preacher. And we'll see that in the book of Colossians itself. He was with Paul when this letter was written. Because he is the one who came and gave this report to Paul. So in response what Paul does, Paul writes a letter to the saints in Colossae. And probably he expanded this letter into another letter to the letter to the Ephesians, which we have already studied. Now what Paul does after writing this letter, he sends his reply through a fellow by the name of Tychicus in the map. Look, I want you to look at the map. It's, it's found in Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 to 9. If you have Bibles, you can look at it. I'm not going to bring it up on the screen. Tychicus, a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant of the Lord, and Paul writes, will tell you all the news about me. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. So here, Epaphras brought the information, the struggles and the issues. He brought it to Paul, who is in prison. And prison now, Paul spent some time writing a response. That's what we are going to look at over the next five months. And then he wrote this letter. And then he also wrote the second book, is the book letter to the Ephesians. And then he gives it to a fellow, a, a, a servant by the name of Tychicus. And he says, go and give it to the saints in Colossae. So both the epistles, Ephesians and Colossians, are similar in structure and content. Even if you try and buy a book, a commentaries, you will always find these two books are linked together. In Colossae, the emphasis is different from the emphasis that we find in the book of Ephesians. In, Col in the Colossians, the emphasis is on Christ as the head of the church. Whereas in Ephesians, the emphasis is on church as the body of Christ, the head. So Colossians is much more focused on attacking the false doctrine that was infiltrating the church. Whereas Ephesians is more of a general. You know, when he studied Ephesians, I told you it was known to be a circular letter. What does that mean? It was intended for several churches in Asia Minor. So now, sending this letter through Tychicus, now Paul is asking the saints in Colossae to do something. Very interesting. Look at this. In verse, chapter 4, verse 16, Paul says, Now when this epistle is read among you, so meaning, fellows, when you receive this, I'm sending this letter, I want you to read this first. See that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans. And that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. So Paul is asking the church in Colossae to send this letter to the church in Laodicea after they have processed this, after they have read it. And in turn, 
Paul wants them to read the letter that was sent to, uh, sent by Paul to, La, to the church in Laodicea as well. Now the scholars say that that would be the epistle to the Ephesians because you don't see a letter to Laodiceans in the Bible. So by doing this, when you bring these two letters together, there are two doctrinal issues are addressed. One is Christology, because that's what Colossians is all about. It's an understanding of Christ. Then ecclesiology, that is what Ephesians is about, is about the study of the church. So still begs the question, what was the problem in the church in Colossae? You know what, church? The exact nature of the false teaching is not known. We'll be able to gather some information based on the response that Paul is giving to the saints in Colossae. So the Colossian heresy or the deviations stems from two elements, and I want you to focus on this. There's the false Greek philosophy and Judaistic legalism and ceremonialism. Let me repeat that. We are looking at two issues here, main issues. One is Greek philosophy, other one is Judaistic legalism and ceremonialism. This is the problem that was spotted nearly 2,000 years ago in a church in Colossae. If you really examine this, as I stopped and as I reflected on this, you know what, today, that's the same problem that you have across the globe. The problem is legalism, the problem is ceremonialism, and the problem is philosophy, it's about knowledge. All the heretical thinking comes, it stems from these three schools of thoughts. Philosophy, legalism, and ceremonialism. So the core issue the denial of the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ for salvation. So naturally, the sufficiency of Christ becomes the main theme of the book of Colossians. Now we can draw from Paul's defense the issues that these heretics had. I'm not going to go verse by verse because we are going to study that in depth later. Again, today I'm only whetting your appetite, just giving you the big picture. There are about four at least you can notice. Number one is philosophies of men. What do I mean by that? When people need superior knowledge for salvation, salvation is not by Christ alone, by grace alone. People would experience fullness through their insights which denied the all-sufficiency and preeminence of Christ. That was one problem. Second problem they had is the Judaistic ceremonialism, which attached special significance to the right of circumcision, food regulations, and observance of special days. And we see that even today in many churches. Ceremonialism. The third thing that we see is an angelic worship, thinking that angelic beings could help their attain salvation which really distracted from the uniqueness of Christ. We see all these problems in chapter 2. 
And the last one that you see is asceticism, which called for harsh treatment of the body as the means to control its lusts. Now, as a result of this heresy, the basic doctrine on which we all stand, on which the churches are established, the basic doctrine of the gospel were in jeopardy. In what areas? Just look at this and we are going to study that later. The compromise issues noted are the supremacy of Christ in all things in the world and in the church. We find that in the chapter 1, 13 to 19. The adequacy of the divine nature of Jesus to procure reconciliation and salvation for wicked men. And then the completeness of the redemption provided by him. These are the basic doctrine of the gospel that were in jeopardy. And number four is the worthiness of sufferings and sacrifices for the gospel. Number five, the inability of human religion to benefit the spirit of man. Number six, the removal of God's authority from Moses' law. Number seven is the, superi is the superiority of divine wisdom over other wisdom. Number eight is the importance of observing the moral and ethical standards established through the laws of God. So obviously, church, Paul's corrective measure to all these problems that were created by this heretical teaching is to proclaim two things. Number one is the supremacy of Jesus Christ overall. That's what he find in Colossians 1.18. And he is the head of the body. Paul is not mincing his words. He, meaning Jesus, is the head of the body, the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. The supremacy of Christ. And number two, what Paul is, in, as a countermeasure, he is, is proclaiming, the sufficiency of Christ. Colossians chapter 3, where there is neither Greek or Jew, circumcised, no circumcised, barbarians, Scythians, slave, no free, but Christ is all and in all. All sufficiency of Christ. So one theologian divides the book into two broad sections, and one he called the polemical, Polemical means is a controversial argument as one against some opinion or doctrine. Chapters 1 and 2, he says it's about an argument where Paul argues against the Paul's teaching by exalting Christ alone as preeminent. And chapters 3 and 4 are practical. Just like we found in the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters and the last three chapters. Here we have the first two chapters is more of a defense and last two, three chapters, last two chapters are the practical where Paul shows how Christ preeminence should affect us and our relationships. So if we are to provide an outline so that we get a big picture understanding, we can break it down into three thoughts. And let me on the screen for you as you look at this. Polemical is this. Christ Preeminence is declared in chapter 1. We are looking at the big picture of the whole book. Chapter 1, that is what Paul is doing here. He is saying in chapter 1 
Christ's preeminence is declared in the gospel message, verses 1 to 12. It's declared in redemption, verses 13 to 14. In creation, verses 15 to 17. In the church, verses 18 to 23. In Paul's ministry to the Colossians, verses 24 to chapter 2, verse number 7. That is what we see in chapter 1. As you go to chapter 2, Christ's preeminence is defended. So first he declares what it is, and in whole of chapter 2 he's defending it. He is defending it against the philosophy. I told you those are the two major issues for heretical teaching, the philosophy and the legalism. And he's defending it, verses 8 to 10, and he's defending against the religious legalism from the Jews from verses 11 to 23. And then when you come to the last two chapters, chapters 3 and 4, I told you it's practical. What is our response to Jesus in light of this? And he talks about a number of issues which, we are, which is going to be very near and dear to our hearts. Is going to change the way that we live. In personal purity, chapter 3, verse 1 to 11. In Christian fellowship, verses 12 to 17. In the home, verses 18 to 21. In your workplaces, verses 22 to 41. As a Christian witness, verses 2 to 6 in chapter 4. And in Christian service, verses 7 to 18 of chapter 4. So church, as we prepare to launch into this study of the epistle, which is saturated with the doctrine of Christ, the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ, there are two more lessons or observations I wish to make, just to prepare ourselves for this journey. The first, understand that Paul did not write this book to the saints in Colossae as a theological dissertation to be analyzed by scholars. Let me repeat that. Paul did not write this as a theological dissertation to be analyzed by scholars. It is a pastoral letter to be read and to be understood. By whom? By this common, small town people. Here's the part. They were relatively young Christians. Why? For the transformation of their lives. For their protection. The most mature of these people, the saints in Colossae, were probably no more than five years old in the Lord. They are young Christians. They are young young Christians, since they were mostly Gentiles in the church, they are not coming from a strong Jewish background where they had access to the Old Testament. These people have not been to seminars, they were not taught by rabbis, they were not taught by scholars or scribes or teachers, even Apostle Paul. These are young Christians. So how do you think these new believers comprehend the doctrine of Christology. Don't you think this above their heads? Just think about it, church. It was the Holy Spirit that directed Paul to write these profound truths. And you'll see the depth as we study this further, trust me. The profound truths about Jesus Christ and to these original readers. Now, many of these readers probably can't even read 
their literacy skills were not there. So they had to listen to the letter being read. They do not have, they did not have at that time the Bible commentaries or the concordances or online access to look at other people's views, reviews on this. If they want to hear again, let's say they hear it once, and if they want to hear again, they have to go to the person, can you please read that to me again? I want you to get these people's mindset and their skill set and the ability to comprehend this doctrine of Christology. How did they do that? They must have relied on the Holy Spirit. It must have been the Holy Spirit that was teaching them. How about us? We have the Holy Spirit. When we depend on Him to teach us, church, how easy it should be for us to grasp. The Lord Himself told His disciples in John 14, 20, He said, But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Church, not only did the Holy Spirit teach the disciples, he, but He also longs to teach us, every one of us. He longs to reveal to us the depths of God so that we might learn what it is to be a true follower of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit longs to show us the wisdom of God so that we might, be, we might live as men and women inspired by God rather than fools being swayed by the knowledge by the philosophies, by legalisms, by ceremonialisms, the matters of the world. So let's open our minds and hearts to receive the wisdom that can only come from God Himself in the Holy Spirit as we dive into this study. So Paul writes to the saints in Corinth and he says, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, He searches the depths of God and He simplifies it and explains to us in a language that you and I can comprehend it. The same way He did it to the saints in Colossae. So as we begin this study, church, as we begin to dwell in the study of the book of Colossians, here's a challenge for you. I wish to lay these questions before you. Are you willing to be his student? Are you willing to submit your understanding to the Holy Spirit, live in light of his teaching? Are you willing to appear foolish at times when the world doesn't understand the wisdom of God, when you cannot comprehend it and you cannot fathom it with your little brain? Are you willing to appear foolish at that time and say, oh God, I don't understand. Teach me a God. Are you willing to live wholeheartedly for the pleasure of your heavenly Father over the fleeting opinions of man? If you will open your hearts and mind today to being taught by the Holy Spirit, you will certainly discover a wealth of truth that has the power to set you free from the bonds and burdens of this world. Scripture will begin to change your life. As the Holy Spirit reveals to you how these words that was written 2,000 years ago. And the Spirit will show you how they are applicable even for you today in 2021. So I encourage you to go deeper. 
Let us go in as we dive into the study in the book of Colossians. With the confidence that the Holy Spirit would edify us. Reveal to us things we cannot fathom the same way he did to the saints in Colossae. So the second lesson that we learn from this, the first one is every believer is significant to God. The second one is theology is revealed and taught by the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, as we look at that, when you have you, theology is the, is the understanding knowledge of God. Now, again, then we need to define who God is, isn't it? To have a c correct understanding of the theology. But you for you to have the right theology, the right theology results in Christocentric life. That is what you're talking about here. Your life, the center of your life, your life is governed by Christ. So the first two chapters of these epistles expound the preeminence of Christ. I told you that the core theme is the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. So it begs the question to every one of us as we begin this study, is Christ the central, central, centrality of your life? Or does he merely have a place in your life? You know, this is what he talk about, the godliness, appearance of godliness. Is his sacrificial death on the cross presented as sufficient for your life and godliness? That's the question. Or do you need to add the latest insights from the world to deal with your problems? Just like the potential heresy is creeping into the church in Colossae. The believer that keeps Christ central to life is the one that walks in spirit and in truth. The, that Christian is Christocentric because he or she abides in him and walks like Christ. They talk about him, they think about him, they dream about him, they scheme to spend more time with him. They choose to obey his commands out of love and honor for, the Lord, for their Lord, not from fear of being reprimanded. The greatest desire of Christ-centered believers is to please Him, please the Lord, and to grow to be more like Him. Their lives echo Paul's words to the, to, in Philippians chapter 3. This is what Paul says, I want to know Christ. Yes, that's what he says. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of His resurrection and participation in His suffering. And then Paul says, becoming like Him in His death. That is a Christocentric life. So the chief aim of a Christ-centered life is to glorify God. The secret to living a Christ-centered life is understanding of the fear of the Lord. Church, the fear of the Lord, the continual awareness that loving Heavenly Father is watching and evaluating everything we say, we do, we, we think about, they make decisions based upon the question, would this please the Lord? I know that there was a time when they had this band that they put around, what would Jesus do? WWJD. That should be our cry every day. Would Jesus be pleased with this? They avoid Satan's traps and worldly entanglement because they evaluate the choices. If Jesus was spending the day with me, if he is present right now, would he be pleased 
every life decision is weighed on heaven's scales and evaluated for its eternal significance. Would this please the Lord? That is a person who lives having Christ in the center of his life. But I also want you to know, church, no person has ever lived a perfect life except Jesus. We all will fail. Even those who deeply desire a Christ-centered life will stumble, fall, sin, and make fleshly decisions in moments of weakness. We all will fail. 1 John 1, 8. But a Christ-centered person cannot endure living in disharmony with God. Your rebellion against God or your whatever that you are committing against, it will not last too long. Because the Spirit of the, war, uh, Spirit of the Lord will convict you and when He convicts you, you are going to respond to it. You will quickly confess sin and be restored to fellowship with Him. This process of living in continual harmony with God is what we call sanctification. It is a lifelong process by which God makes us more like Jesus. As days pass by, you heard this over and over again, you begin to sin less and less and less and less. So when you first center our hearts on Him, our lives quickly will follow. But many would seek worldly philosophies. Because we want to justify our actions, our behaviors, and we want to choose, pick and choose what we want to choose from the scriptures, and we want to add some worldly philosophies to justify our actions. So any mixed worldviews with that of Christ, when our lives are not Christocentric, here is the outcome. Paul wants this. Again in the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verse 23, and we're going to dive into that later, another time, but I want you to look at the verse. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom. What does that mean? It means Paul is telling you, yes, you are looking at things and you want to do certain things and you may think that you are doing it right. That's what Paul is saying. It's self-imposed religion. This is a man-made religion. I'm reading into a text the way that I want to interpret the text so that I can justify my actions. Is false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Paul says that these worldly philosophies give the appearance of wisdom, but they don't exalt Christ as the Lord. The one whose life is Christocentric would echo with the psalmist. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh, my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Church, when you process the right theology, you will live Christocentric life. You will exalt Christ as supreme and sufficient for all who believe in. So as I close this message, as we are about to launch into this great book, as we go through the studies, here are the three things that I want us to remember. Preparing ourselves for this great study into the in-depth doctrinal truth of Christology. Don't think that we can't comprehend it. 
Because the Spirit of the Lord is going to guide us through this. Don't think that you are insignificant because every believer is significant to God. If the saints in Colossae were significant to God, you are significant to God. Don't think that I don't have this PhD, so can I fathom this? Don't think that I've been neglected by people. I'm a loner. There's nobody loves me. No, God wants to minister to you. You are significant to God. Just the same way the saints in Colossae were significant. So as we launch again, you know, the theology, we want to understand the theology is revealed and taught by the Holy Spirit. So we need the Spirit of the Lord to guide us through this study. It's a continuous engagement with the Spirit of the Lord. He has to reveal things to us. And when we get the theology right, this is the testing point. If we have got the theology right, if we have understood the book of Colossians, the possessing the right theology will result in a Christocentric life. Church, may this be our prayer. As we prepare ourselves to launch into this study of the book of Colossians, which is saturated with the doctrine of Christ, whose life is Christocentric would echo with the psalmist. Knowing that I am significant to God, it is the Holy Spirit that would teach me the things of God. And if I am yielding to His teaching, my life will be Christocentric. So help me, God. That should be our prayer. So may I close again in a, with a prayer. Shall we rise and let's pray together. And as the worship team comes, I'll wait for the worship team to come, then I'll lead you in a time of prayer. Church, as you prepare yourselves to dive into this passage of scriptures, I want you to know that you are significant to God. I want you to know that it is the Holy Spirit that's going to teach us the things of God. And I also want you to know that if you have got it right, your life will change. It will become Christocentric. And then your prayer will be this. Let us pray together. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh, my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God, that's the cry of our heart today. So help us in this journey over the next five months. And make us into the people who will have a Christocentric life. In Jesus' name we pray.